MacCast, Sunday, August 21st, 2022. Hey, Mac Geeks, it's time for your MacCast, the show for Mac Geeks by Mac Geeks. I'm Adam, and this is a show where we discuss all things Macintosh. How you doing? Welcome back to the MacCast. Glad to be back here with you for another week of Apple hints, tips, news, tricks, all the goings-ons in our little Apple Mac community. Hopefully you are having a wonderful, great day or weekend, whatever it might be. Glad to see you. We're sitting here looking over the show notes and... We have some stuff to talk about, not a ton of stuff, but definitely going to get into what is coming up next for Apple. We are fast approaching the uh, fall launch season. We're expecting a lot of new Apple gear and products just around the corner, and we actually have potentially some dates now. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about what we can expect from each of the upcoming events, and there are a couple, so we'll get into those. We also have some Apple TV Plus news, and then some OS updates, uh, some things that you should know about in terms of getting your uh, devices updated, and a little VPN thing that we're going to talk about a little bit too. So we're going to get into some of the latest news from the past week and then we're going to get back into some of your feedback a few follow-up items uh video videos in messages i have um some follow-up on that from the last episode we're also going to follow up on our sparse image conversation and then i want to talk a little bit about apple and advertising i just have some opinions on that we're going to try to help a listener out with some planning on a new home and uh, talk about the user interface. Um, Somebody brought up a great topic for that this week. So we're going to get into all of that. Should be a great episode. Looking forward to diving in. And I say we start by doing just that. And we'll kick things off with Apple's next iPhone event. We've talked quite a bit about what's planned for the next iPhone models, but now we might actually have an expected date for the event. Mark Gurman over at Bloomberg thinks that it's going to happen on Wednesday, September 7th. And if you might be thinking, Adam, Wednesday's a little bit of an odd day for an Apple event. It's not unprecedented, but yeah, typically they try to do them on a Tuesday. But if you look at that week, that first week in September, U.S. has the Labor Day holiday on Monday. So it makes sense that Apple might shift everything down or shift everything over for a day. Now, the event in September, Apple is expected to focus on those new iPhone 14 models that we've been talking about and also updated Apple Watch Series 8 models. Just as a quick refresher, in case you don't remember, Apple is expected to drop the small mini version of the iPhone from the lineup. They are going to expand with a new larger iPhone. They will have two entry-level models, the iPhone 14, a 6.1-inch iPhone 14, and a new 6.7-inch iPhone 14 Max, so moving from the Mini to the Max. The entry-level iPhone is expected to have just minor updates, tweaks to the camera. It's going to retain the current A15 processor from the rumors we've been hearing, same processor that's currently on the iPhone 13 models, and that could be slightly tweaked for performance, but we're not expecting a lot of huge updates 
outside of the new size for the entry-level iPhone 14. So kind of an S year or what do we call it, a talk year for the uh, for the iPhone 14 model moving from 13 to 14. The big updates are expected to come in the Pro models. That's where we're expecting a new A16 processor, a brand new redesign of the notch. So notch going away, they're going to do that whole punch hole plus pill design that we've talked about. Uh, new camera tech is likely going to be reserved or more new camera tech is going to be reserved for the pro models. Uh, as far as sizes go, those are going to remain the same, a 6.1 inch iPhone 14 pro and a 6.7 inch iPhone 14 max. But if you're looking this year to do an upgrade and you want to see the most significant uh, changes, be prepared. You're probably going to have to go with the pro models. And also, as we talked about, I think last week, you're going to have to be prepared, to maybe pay a little bit more because it is expected that Apple is going to do a price increase, probably of about $100 US on the base price of each model. So iPhone getting more expensive, likely due to just economic situations, supply chain, all those sorts of things. Uh, Apple making that adjustment. And it's been years since they've made that adjustment. So not surprising they're doing it this year, although it does sting a little bit for those of us who you know like to do an upgrade every year. So just be prepared for that. Apple is also expected to unveil three Apple Watch models at this event, uh, refreshed versions of the Apple Watch Series 8, along with a refreshed version of the Apple Watch SE. We're not expecting a lot of huge new features. They are saying potentially some new women's health features and maybe that body temperature sensor we've been talking about. So a little bit of new functionality. Design is expected to stay largely the same on those models. But then we are expecting that new premium Apple Watch model, which is going to be that rugged extreme sports design. So probably a little bit bigger, more rugged and targeted at that market. So that's what we're expecting. Reportedly, Apple has told retail employees to prepare for a release of new products on September 16th. So that would be the week following the event, the Friday. And that means we could probably expect pre-orders to happen on the Friday of the event. So that would be September 9th, pre-orders going on sale for the iPhones and the Apple Watches with deliveries happening the following week following week. So pretty quick turnaround uh, this year. So be ready for that if you're planning on getting some new uh, new uh, new products. And then the event is expected to be pre-recorded. Uh, reportedly, Apple's already in production on that. Although it has been noted that Apple might invite some members of the media to come watch at Apple campus, probably in the Steve Jobs Theater. And then that would give them the opportunity to have their hands on area after the event so people can cover all the new products and uh, everything. So that's what we're expecting for September. After that, we are expecting the next event to happen in October. No specific dates on that one yet, but Apple is expected to then show off new iPads and Macs. They're also likely to announce the final features and release dates for iPad OS and Mac OS Ventura. So we'll get the iOS updates along with the iOS products in September, and then that will be followed up with the new operating systems for iPad OS and, and Macs in October. Uh, as far as what Apple will likely announce at that October event, it's, it's expected that Apple will update the iPad Pro models, bringing in new M2 processors. 
As a matter of fact, the Commercial Times reported that TSMC will be using their new 3 nanometer process to produce MNU processors by the end of 2022, although that's expected for the M2 Pro models, not the M2 processor, M2 Pro and M2 Max processors, not not the current M2 processors that Apple brought to the MacBook Air. That'll be the processor likely to show up in the iPad Pro models. Um, originally, timing on that new three nanometer process was expected to be delayed, or it was thought it might get delayed until next year, but apparently that has changed. And in an interesting rumor with regards to the iPad Pro, we're hearing it might be a possibility that Apple could bring MagSafe to the iPad Pro. I say interesting because I'm trying to think of how Apple might implement this. They already have the USB-C connector, which can deliver power. It keeps it nice and simple. If they add a MagSafe connector, you now have a second connector, unless Apple is doing something to tweak or adapt the current smart connector technology and we did kind of hear about this new connector that looks like it might actually have four connection points rather than the three that the current smart connector does so maybe apple has tweaked the smart connector to bring it in line with kind of their magsafe technology sort of merging the two together and we might see a whole new raft of accessories but that's just a little bit of speculation on my part i just feel like it doesn't make a lot of sense to add second connector just to carry power when you can already do that through the single USB-C connector. But we'll have to wait and see what Apple does on that one. Uh, as far as updates go, the iPad Pro expected to remain largely the same, same sizes, kind of same design, just some minor tweaks in terms of the new processor and maybe this new connector or MagSafe connector. On iPad updates, though, the Bigger updates are expected to happen for the entry-level iPad. Apple is expected to completely redesign the case with flat edges, bringing it more in line with the design language of the other current iPads. That model is expected to retain the Touch ID, which is really interesting. I would think Apple would be getting close to being ready to get rid of that, but we are expecting the kind of larger top and bottom bezels Although with the new design, it's going to allow them to put in a slightly larger display, probably 10.5 inch retina display. Although I think I did see one rumor kind of alluding to maybe a 10.9 inch display. I think 10.5 is probably where it'll land. It should have the same resolution as the iPad Air. They are going to finally remove the lightning connector. I, th I think if I'm remembering the base model is the last iPad to have the lightning connector. So they're going to swap that out for USB-C. So USB-C across the entire iPad lineup. Finally, they're going to add 5G support to the entry level iPad. They're going to ditch the headphone jack and it should get an updated 814 Bionic processor um, because they're moving to USB-C. That would also mean that they'd likely need to add support for Apple Pencil 2 since the original Apple Pencil charges through the lightning port or charges and also pairs through the lightning port. So uh, big, big changes on the entry-level iPad. So if you've been in the market for that, now is probably the time to jump in once Apple announces this in the fall. And again, that's expected to happen in October. Now, moving over to the Mac front, Apple is expected to announce new updated 14-inch and 16-inch MacBook Pro models, bringing in the M2 Pro and M2 Max processors, likely using that new TSMC 3 nanometer process. 
It's also expected that they will update the Mac Mini, though it's less clear on that side if they'll be just updating that with the M2 or if we'll see an expansion of the lineup to include a Pro version of the Mac Mini using M2 Pro or M2 Max processors. That's something we've been talking about. It's been rumored for a while. Personally, my gut says probably not. As as awesome as it would be to have a Mac Mini Pro again, I simply think because Apple had released the Mac Studio this year, it would kind of muddy the waters a little bit. You know, the Mac Studio, in my opinion, is a Mac Mini Pro, although, you know, price point and size much, much larger. So we could see a little expansion of the Mac Mini lineup. I just worry that it might cause a little bit of confusion in the market. But if you don't agree with me, let me know. Send me a comment, maccast at gmail.com. But that's what we're expecting for the second event. And again, that should be happening sometime in October. The Apple TV Plus shows Severance and Ted Lasso racked up an incredible seven wins at the Hollywood Critics Association TV Awards this week. Severance won in the drama category for Best Streaming Series, Best Actress in a Streaming Series, Best Supporting Actor in a Streaming Series, Best Writing in a Streaming Series, and Best Directing in a Streaming Series. And Ted Lasso won for Comedy in Best Streaming Series and Best Supporting Actor in a Streaming Series categories. In all, Apple TV Plus shows received a record 53 nominations at the Critics Hollywood Critics Association TV Awards. That's a little bit of a mouthful. Apple TV Plus has signed a deal for a new film starring Mark Wahlberg, according to Deadline. The new movie, called The Family Plan, is another collaboration between Apple Original Films and Skydance Media. Simon Seelan Jones is signed on to direct the film, which is about a suburban dad who must take his family on the run when his past catches up with him. And then bad news, or a little bit of bad news, if you live in Chicago and have Apple TV+, Plus, or actually any of Apple's streaming, streaming services, starting next month, Apple will have to start collecting the city's municipal 9% Netflix tax on Apple TV+, Plus, Apple Music, and Apple Arcade subscriptions. The tax actually went into effect in 2015 and covers video and music streaming services, as well as video game subscription services. So it actually is going to hit, you know, all three of those Apple services, music, TV, and arcade. Apple had actually filed lawsuits prior to the launch of Apple TV Plus to try and avoid having to remit the tax. But ultimately, Apple dropped the lawsuits after the courts had ruled the municipal tax did not violate the Federal Internet Tax Freedom Act, nor were they unconstitutional. So looking like that new tax is going to hit Chicagoans starting next month. And then finally, in the news for this week, a couple of uh, updates and security issues that you probably should know about. Apple this past week released a couple of OS updates for Mac and iOS devices. And if you are able, you're going to want to run these updates. Mac OS Monterey 12.5.1 and iOS and iPadOS 15.6.1 contain updates that address a kernel and or that address kernel and WebKit vulnerabilities. Uh, and you're going to want these patches. 
the mainstream media already kind of blew these updates out of proportion, in my opinion. They are serious, but there's not any likely need to panic. The main concern is that there's reason to believe, actually Apple has stated, these vulnerabilities may have been actively exploited in the wild. That said, if you just patch your systems, you're unlikely to have to be concerned. Apple's existing multi-layered protections and sandboxing should help, but you're better off getting the full protection by running these updates. Another thing to be aware of this week and another flaw in iOS is has to do with how it handles VPN tunnels. And this impacts all VPN apps currently running on iOS. This information came from a security researcher who claims that Apple has known about the flaw for about two and a half years. The issue has to do with what happens or really what doesn't happen when you activate the AVPN on iOS. What should happen is that it should shut down all existing non-secure data connections and then route them through your VPN tunnel. Apparently on iOS, that doesn't always happen and is not exactly the case. Existing non-secure connections can remain open, according to the security researcher, and the claim is is that Apple doesn't provide any way for a VPN app to close all non-secure connections and force them over to the secure tunnel. Now, that claim, it turns out, is not 100% true, at least according to 9to5Mac. They pointed to a 2019 Worldwide Developer Conference presentation where Apple provided a way for VPN apps to do exactly what's being described, but for some reason it seems like the VPN apps tested by the security researcher aren't using this technique or this functionality, so it's a little bit unclear. In reality, when activating a VPN on iOS, most network connections are going to end up being short-lived and should eventually just naturally reestablish themselves through the VPN tunnel on their own, but because that's not always the case, This is something that you should be aware of if you're using a VPN on iOS. And I know that now that more people are working remotely from home, this might be more of a factor. It's not clear if there's any other workaround outside of maybe rebooting your device and starting the VPN from the get-go. Apparently, some are saying that toggling airplane mode should work, but the security researcher in this report claims that it no longer does in iOS 15, so you could try that out. But this is definitely something you should be aware of, again, if you're using a VPN on iOS. And then Apple has extended its service program for the iPhone 12 and iPhone 12 Pro models that might be experiencing sound-related issues. They added another year of coverage to their extended warranty program for iPhone 12 and iPhone 12 Pro devices. They are now covered for up to three years after the first retail sale of the device. This is due to an issue that could impact the receiver or the earpiece on your iPhone 12 or iPhone 12 Pro. So if that has failed and it and your device was manufactured between October 2020 and April 2021, you could be eligible to be covered under this program. It's worth noting that the program only covers iPhone 12 and iPhone 12 Pro models. The iPhone 12 mini and iPhone 12 Pro Max are not part of this program. And with that, that is going to do it for the news for this week.
Before we move on, I do want to take a quick moment and thank a show sponsor, and that is Simply Safe. So here's a question Is there anything that matters more than the safety of you? and your loved ones? Uh, Of course not. So isn't it strange that many home security companies don't act that way? This is why I use and trust Simply Safe Home Security. Their advanced security technology helps me sleep at night, and they always put me and my family's safety first. And here's why I love it. For me, it's the flexibility, the adaptability, and the expandability of the system. That, coupled with the fact that I could set up and install the system by myself in minutes. It was incredibly easy. I was able to start with a basic system, and then as I became more familiar, I could add additional sensors and expand the features and capabilities of my security system and expand and enhance my coverage. And it was really great, especially when I moved and I had new zones that I wanted to protect, like my new home office space. I could get a system that could move and grow with me. And that is a great feature of Simply Safe. And with 24-7 professional monitoring, Simply Safe's agents call you the moment a threat is detected and dispatch police or first responders in an emergency, even if you're not home or can't be reached. Simply Safe's monitoring agents truly care about your well-being and are highly trained to help keep you calm and safe during stressful situations, staying on the line with you until help arrives. Simply Safe's customer first policies make sure you're taken care of with affordable plans starting at less than $1 a day and no long-term contract or hidden fees because feeling safe at home shouldn't break the bank. Customize the perfect system for your home in just a few minutes at simplysafe.com slash MacCast. Go today and claim a free indoor security camera plus 20% off with interactive monitoring. Go to simplysafe.com slash MacCast. That's S-I-M-P-L-I-S-A-F-E dot com slash MacCast. And a big thank you to Simply Safe for their support of the show. One of the troubleshooting issues we brought up on the previous episode of the MacCast had to do with the Messages app and sending video. We had a listener who was asking why sometimes when he would attempt to send video in Messages, would the videos come through at a very, very small size? And now, this is something that tends to happen when the videos get sent as SMS messages instead of Apple messages or instead of in, I guess they still call it iMessage format. And uh, the weird thing was, though, this particular listener said that everybody in the group message was actually on an iPhone. So we were trying to speculate and figure out theories as to why videos occasionally would come through at a smaller size. And Doug actually emailed me and he had a pretty good theory, something that I had not thought about. He said, could it be that though he's sending all the messages to all Apple users, that one of them is sending or receiving via text message rather than messages? I know that sometimes I end up sending a text message when I am on on the edge of my cell service or if the data is a bit iffy or weak. And so I think that might be the variable here because this was a group message. The particular listener did say, hey, I tried this, you know, sending the video on Wi-Fi, so I know it's not my connection. I'm actually really solid. Everybody's an 
uh, is using messages. Everybody's an iOS user. Um, but yeah, if, and we've seen it, or you've probably experienced it if you've used messages for a long time. Occasionally, you'll be in an area, and for some reason, even on your iPhone, it sends an SMS, a green bubble message, instead of a blue bubble message, right? And that's indicated, that's the thing that indicates that you're sending as SMS and you're not going through Apple's messages system. So it could be that one individual person in that group message has that. And I think in that case, just like it would if you had an Android user in the group message, it would fall back for everybody to sending as an SMS message. And uh, that might be what causes the video to go smaller. So I thought that was a good theory. Maybe there's other reasons for it. But uh, thanks, Doug, for chiming in with your opinion. And uh, if you know differently or know another reason why videos might end up small, again, send your feedback in emails to metcast at gmail.com. Another item we were talking about on the previous episode of the MacCast was encrypted disk images. Uh, this is a way that you can safely and securely store private data and information on locally on your Mac. Uh, one thing I love about sparse images is that they're encrypted locally. So if you're using other backup systems or methods, including Time Machine and iCloud Backup or Backblaze or something like that, your data is secured locally and then the backups are stored remotely, but in a secure format. So if they were ever to get compromised, um, you're going to be protected. And uh, there was a little bit of continuation from our discussion last time about encrypted disk images. One thing was that Rick, who we were trying to help out with this feature, noticed that he was having issues setting the size on his image when he was creating it. I mentioned when you create the image, you kind of have to set a specific size for the bundle. And seemingly to Rick, it wouldn't let him create an image larger than the 100 megabyte default size. And what was happening was that uh, when you go in and you change the format, so the kind of way the dialogue is you know, plays out, you select the encryption level, you select a bunch of different things, and then the option for selecting the actual format of a disk image or an encrypted disk image or bundle or whatever you want to select, that is kind of the second or third option down the list. And so what happens is if you set the other settings first and then change that one, it changes the entire format of the dialogue and some of those options can change. So it kind of resets the whole dialogue, putting the default storage size back to 100 megabytes. So the storage size actually comes before that dialogue as well. So it can be a little bit confusing in the user interface. And um, I just wanted to point that out in case you ran into that same problem. So you're going to want to set the size of your bundle or your image after you select the format options. So make sure you do that size option last. Uh, Rick also asked what I thought was a great question and something I really didn't explain last time when we talked about this. He says, you know, there's the option to create a sparse image or a sparse bundle. And what is the difference? Because I believe in that show, I said that I use the sparse bundle option, and that was the one that I recommended. And the reason I recommend sparse bundle versus sparse image is that it's better for backup. The sparse bundle was actually something that Apple uh, developed for Time Machine. And the reason is, is, like I said, when you set up a sparse image or a sparse 
bundle image, it doesn't really matter which one, you kind of set the maximum size that that thing can ever grow to. But as you add data to it, right, it takes up a certain amount of data, however much uh, data that you actually put into the image. And that's what gets stored on your Mac. But it's stored as a single file or what might look like a single file in the case of a sparse bundle. So a sparse image will uh, be the total size of all the data in it, no matter what. So as you add new data, that changes the image. And so to a backup system, it looks like an updated or changed file. And if, say, your sparse image is 100 megabytes, and say you add 50 megabytes to it, it's now 150 megabytes, your backup program, even if it's doing incremental or watching for changes in files, it's going to have to back up that entire 150 megabytes. With a sparse bundle, what happens is it stores everything in eight megabyte chunks. So it breaks up that image into tinier pieces. And that way, when you add new data, it can back up in parts just the changes up to eight megabytes at a time. So it's a little bit better for incremental backups and those sorts of things. They'll be able to back up those images, especially if you get very, very large images, right? Imagine you create a two gigabyte image and you have a gigabyte of data in there and you just add, say, a eight megabyte, eight megabyte file to that image. Now, in the case of a bundle image, it would have to back up that entire gig plus eight megabytes. With a sparse bundle, it can just back up that incremental eight megabytes of data. So hopefully that makes sense. It's a little bit hard to kind of wrap your head around in audio, but that's kind of the difference between the sparse bundle and the sparse image options. Now I want to have a little bit of a community discussion about something because I'm very curious to get your opinion on something that came up in the news this past week. And it has to do with Apple and advertising. Apparently Apple wants to expand its advertising revenue significantly. This information came from a note, I think from Mark Gurman over at Bloomberg in his newsletter. And he said recently that Apple's VP of advertising platforms, Todd Teresi, wants to triple the current amount of Apple ad revenue. Right now, Apple is currently estimated to be generating about $4 billion annually in advertising. So it sounds like they want to take that up to about $12 billion in advertising. And as you likely know, that means more ads. I mean, that's kind of how you're going to actually do that. And I think most of us actually know that Apple has been doing ads in their app store for a while. Um, I actually knew that Apple had been hiring programmers for its advertising division recently. So it seems like they're definitely gearing up for an expansion. Um, and even if you don't know about Apple ads in the App Store, um, you may remember that a while back, Apple had its iAd program where it would sell or develop in-app advertising. That program died and they just had the ads in the App Store. They actually also have ads in the News app 
as you might imagine. So if you've used the news app there, there are ads in there and they sometimes could be Apple ads or ads from the, um, the content provider's own network. Both are possible. And then there's also ads in the stocks app. Although to me, those always felt kind of related to news because along with the stocks, they give you a news section and there can be ads in there. And then the last place I guess Apple has ads. I haven't been watching a lot of the MLB Friday night baseball streams, but there's ads in those streams. Again, that kind of feels similar to any kind of sports advertising you would see if you were watching on traditional cable or satellite or something like that. So it doesn't seem too odd, but right now I think those are the main places where Apple is delivering ads. And it's always been a little bit controversial, especially like the App Store ads. Those are ads that developers use basically to promote their apps, right? They can buy kind of search keywords or search options and then surface their um, their advertising or their apps up in the search results, similar to what happens when you do like a Google search and there's paid advertising or paid ad search results in there. And even though I think they do a fairly good job at trying to indicate that those are ad or paid results. I'm not sure it's always 100% obvious to every user that that's what's going on there. I've especially seen it with like the Google ad search results. People don't realize they're actually clicking on an ad. So there's a little bit of debate on whether that's maybe a little bit deceitful or nefarious. Um, you know, it is a way that Apple can generate revenue. Unfortunately, I think a lot of times the people who buy those ads are ones who have lower quality apps, to be honest. Not always, but like a lot of times it's that kind of shovelware that the kind of apps that you generally want to avoid in the app store. So it's, you know, a catch 22. According to Gurman, Apple has internally started testing sponsored ads in maps and search results. And he's also speculating that Apple could bring ads to the podcast and book apps. And then another thought is that, you know, Apple TV plus could do like some of the other streaming services that have started to do. I think Disney and Netflix are both going to offer an ad supported option and they could eventually turn to an ad supported tier for Apple TV plus. Here's the thing though, right? <laughs> I don't know about you, but I pay Apple a premium, a lot of money for products and services and I would expect to not have to be subjected to ads within apps like the podcast app, the books app, uh, for the privilege of, you know, paying Apple a lot of money for my device, a lot of money for my services. Um, so I'm not kind of feeling super good about this. I think a lot of us are not feeling super good about this. I suspect that Apple's likely going to attempt to at least at first stick with advertising that is quote-unquote supporting the app content similar to what they do in the app store so allowing podcasters or book authors to buy sponsored ads in the search section of those apps for example but to me that doesn't make it any easier to swallow and I feel like I need to be critical of the fact that it definitely sets up this kind of pay-for-play scenario inside apps where Apple already controls kind of the top lists and a lot of the marketing and popular lists that are inside those apps, right? If you're not 
in that kind of featured section, and that's all Apple editorial. They get to make the decisions on that. The only other way then to kind of lift yourself up or gain yourself extra exposure is going to be to pay Apple for these new ads. So I think that kind of stinks, right? Like it creates this uneven platform where if you have enough money, you can kind of get serviced or you have to kind of be in the good favors of Apple and their content team. And, you know, it just doesn't sit very well for me. And I think it leads to if we start accepting this kind of advertising, what's next? What kinds of other ads is Apple going to try and squeeze in there? And then the other thing that I think about is that Apple could potentially find themselves in a very precarious situation from a regulatory perspective. You know, their app tracking transparency, ATT framework, has had a big impact on the ads of competitors like Facebook and Google. And if Apple is going to step up or ramp up their ad strategy, it could look from the outside more and more like an anti-competitive move. You know, setting up the app tracking transparency, shutting that down and sort of locking out third parties and anybody outside of Apple from advertising within the Apple ecosystem yeah, something that Facebook has basically already accused Apple of doing or attempting to do, it starts to look more and more like that's exactly what they're doing if they're expanding you know, their advertising footprint, especially across their own apps and services and stuff like that. So again, I'm not super excited about more ads. I feel like we're already completely bombarded by ads and spam and it's it's pretty bad. And I have to say, I'm probably partially culpable, right? I mean, this podcast is ad supported. Hopefully you find the ads here to be relevant and and helpful to you. But yeah, it's something that's always in the back of my mind. I try to balance the amount of content with the amount of advertising. And at least here, I'm kind of in control of that within the Apple ecosystem and inside an app. You know, you may be a fan of using the stock app. I guess you could go to a third-party app and maybe escape Apple's own ads, but definitely not if you want to use some of their great products and services, right? I really like Apple Arcade. I like Apple News. I like these things, and I pay a lot of money every month to have access to that. I don't feel like I should have to be subjected to ads on top of that. Again, if the apps are free and then you get advertising and that's sort of the trade-off, that feels a little bit better. I mean, again, that's sort of how this podcast is, right? We don't, I don't charge for the podcast. Um, you can support it if you want, but you're not required to. And we get a little support from our advertising. But this is not really the case, right, in what Apple is proposing. You're going to be subjected to ads just when you're going to, say, the podcast app, to search for your favorite podcast. That does not feel really great, in my opinion. Again, when you're paying a premium for your device, you're paying a premium for those services. Um, yeah. So I don't know. What do you think? Am I kind of way off base here? Is this a little bit of overreaction? Or is this something we really need to be concerned about in our community? I'm really curious to hear your thoughts and opinions. So please send me some email, or even better yet, a quick audio comment to Maccast at gmail.com. So Dan 
emailed me and he said, hey, I bought a house recently and Dan, congrats on buying a new house. Um, and he wants to do a little bit of planning planning for things like furniture, decorating, remodeling, etc., whatever it might be. He says the new house is in California and he's actually away for the summer and he thought it would be really great if he could get a floor plan, but apparently the floor plan is not available. And so he then thought, well, it would be awesome if I could have my realtor kind of go around the house with like an iPhone and use some of its magic built-in technology, the sensor technology, the AR technology with a simple app and do all of its magic to kind of map out the rooms and dimensions and create that floor plan. But he says, I don't know that there's anything that's really just that easy. Uh, and, you know, that is supposedly the promise of Apple's AR technologies, but are we really there yet? And is this something he could reasonably ask his realtor to kind of go do? Um, that got me thinking, you know, like there has to be some kind of apps. I've played around with and used the Measure app. I've used some of these apps before, and it's never been 100% perfect for me. It feels pretty good. And so I kind of did some looking around and there are definitely apps that claim to do this kind of stuff. Uh, I actually found one that's specifically designed for realtors and contractors, etc. called Measure Square. I'll have a link to it in the show notes at, at maccast.com, but it's definitely a pro level application because it's pretty pricey. It's a subscription app and it costs $45 a month. So it's for sure targeted at commercial, you know, realtors and, and contractors and stuff like that. But I ended up emailing them just to ask, hey, do you have an option or something available for consumers? And it turns out they actually do. They emailed me back and said, hey, we actually have an app called Reno Plan. It's free or that's the, they told me it was free, but really it's a freemium app. Um, and it promises to let you use AR kit and that sensor technology in your iPhone to do uh, room measurements and basically build out a floor plan with ARKit in the app. And so you can do like corner to corner measurements and kind of measure out a, a room and then that'll turn that into a floor plan. It'll even turn it into a 3D rendering. You can add doors and windows and all kinds of stuff. It gives you the measurements of the room. You can also take measurements from the photos. It has a beta feature where you can just point your camera at a wall, it'll detect the wall and take measurements and, and build out a floor plan that way. And so it seemed really, really cool. Um, you know, they call it free, but it's free with limits. You can do up to 10 floor plans, which I think would be fine for most consumers. So the, the free functionality does seem to be pretty full featured. Um, if you need more than that, they do offer a pro version for, I think, $9.99 a month or $100 a year. So you can pay a subscription and kind of get additional features and functionality. But all the base functionality seemed to work. And I kind of tried it out. Um, I was not really successful in getting accurate measurements. And this is sort of the same kind of problem I had with um, just Apple's built-in measure app. It does pretty good. I was able to go like around my backyard when we moved to the new house and use Apple's measure app to get some basic measurements on the dimensions of 
the backyard. And I think you could do a similar thing with this app. Now, it does allow you to go in after you've kind of taken the base measurements and do some editing, but I struggled a little bit with the editing UI in the app. So again, I don't think it was perfect. I think maybe with some time and a little bit of help, maybe some tutorials, I could figure it out and do a pretty good job of creating a basic floor plan. But I still think you're going to have to do some manual work. Now, the one thing I wasn't able to try out and where I think maybe an app like this really would shine is it does support laser measure devices that have Bluetooth technology. So Bosch, DeWalt, a few other companies, you can go to, you know, your local home improvement center and get a laser measure and then connect that to this app. And I think that might give you much better, more accurate results. So you could go around the room with your laser measure, pass those dimensions and information over to the app, and then let that build out the floor plan for you. But, you know, overall, I just, I don't think the AR technology is there yet. Um, There's always also the option of just going around your room with a tape measure and using something free like Google SketchUp to build a floor plan. So I think you have some options, but I'm curious, you know, outside of apps like this and ARKit or maybe with ARKit and a different app, what other tools or apps are you using uh, to build out basic floor plans or do this kind of thing that... uh, that Dan is looking to do. Do you have any tips or tricks or techniques? Maybe I'm doing something wrong. Maybe you're using this Reno Plan app and very successfully, and maybe there's some tips and tricks there. So if you have any feedback, shoot me an email, send me an audio comment, maccast at gmail.com. And then the last thing that I want to talk about today is the scavenger hunt user interface. This was actually sent in from listener John who said, hey, I've been watching a live stream from Scott Adams, the creator of Dilbert, and he posed the hypothetical question, quote, if Steve Jobs were still alive, do you think he would have approved an iPhone iOS system that was so complex? There's at least five ways to silence an incoming phone call all in different locations in the UI. And again, this is according to uh, Scott Adams, the creator of Dilbert. He says, Scott says that many online, including him, now refer to Apple's iOS user interface as the scavenger hunt user interface, which has grown so complex and obscure that in order to do simple tasks, the user must hunt and search for the control that they seek. John says, I completely agree with his view and wonder what you think. So he's kind of writing in to find out our opinion. And I have to say, you know, first things first, I get where Scott Adams might be coming from, but I am not a huge fan of the WWSJD or what would Steve Jobs do hyperbole. Um That's because it's hard to say since Steve Jobs isn't here anymore. He isn't with us. And this is an argument a lot of people like to use when they feel like Apple has moved in a direction that is more complex or maybe doesn't agree with what their perceived sensibilities of what Apple is and is supposed to be are. And, uh, you know, I don't think it's 100% correct because if we really look back Steve did a great job of sort of simplifying things, but there was also the reality distortion field. And Steve definitely wasn't always perfect in his decisions around usability either. And I'll give the example of the iMac hockey puck mouse. Yeah, that mouse that was 100% round and you couldn't even tell its orientation. They had to put like a divot in it at one point. Like it was, it was a nightmare. 
right? And that was something Steve approved under his watch. So who's to say what he would do or wouldn't do in terms of iOS? And there's probably plenty of features if I really went back and we really analyzed iOS that Steve approved that are or fall in this sort of area of scavenger hunt UI or what I've often called hidden UI features in iOS, right? But getting back to this point made by Scott Adams, I would say it's not without merit. You know, there are UX decisions made around Mac and iOS in recent years that probably hold up to a little bit of criticism like this. And as also pointed out by Scott's example, oftentimes it's not just hidden UI elements, but it's also multiple ways of accomplishing the same task. And often, you know, a big part of Apple and Mac operating system culture and just sort of methodology and thinking is simplification, right? Distilling things down so that there is just one way of doing things. This is one of the reasons why Max for so many years had a one button mouse. And this was something that, you know, Steve Jobs notoriously hated buttons in general, but, you know, having a single button mouse, because I think the original mouse concept that Xerox Park put together that Steve Jobs originally saw, I think it was a three button mouse, right? So it had three different click points. Steve distilled that down to a single button, which really simplified it because that was a new UI element. It was something that people had to get used to. I actually think it's a great example for this conversation that we're having. Uh, because I think if you look at how user interface and UX and technology evolves, you have to think about where things come from, where they start, and where they move to. You have to think about it like, hey, it's always been this way, that there is usually new technology comes out, a new way of doing things, whether it is a mouse or it's multi-touch technology or whatever it might be. And you have a set of functionality or a language that starts out very, very simple, easy enough for almost anyone to understand or use. And then over time, you layer on, as people become familiar with that language, you layer on more advanced technology and and gestures and user interface and all that stuff that happens over time and people pick it up there's always been this what i'm going to call cultural language around technology that you know starts out as obscure and is only known to a few people at first but then evolves over time and again that mouse example i think is a really great example when the mouse first came out most people probably didn't know how to use it they had to learn how to be effective at using a mouse. And yes, Apple did distill it down to a single button rather than multi-buttons to make that learning process easier. But as the years progressed and the UI got more familiar and that methodology got more familiar and was easier for more people to understand or more people understood it, right? It became kind of the norm. And then you could layer on in additional generations, more advanced features and technology that fit that cultural technological language. So more buttons, additions of things like scroll wheels and more functionality, that sort of stuff. And I sort of see gesture-based UIs as having a similar evolution, right? Pinch to zoom, great example of this. Two-finger scrolling, swiping up to go home when we lost the home button, right? These are all 
iterations or evolutions of that gesture language. And had we tried to go straight to the no home button interface right at first, I think that would have been very confusing. Pinch to zoom was not, you know, in the language right from the start. It was something that people did have to learn, but it's kind of this natural progression. So I think to me, it seems natural, at least a bit, for Apple to expand that gesture lexicon over time and offer more and more advanced features and options as people become familiar with kind of the base thing. And the base stuff doesn't go away. That that base understanding of the language doesn't go away. And the addition of a lot of the features is really designed for more power users. It's something that, you know, really has always existed. If you look back at, I think a great example is keyboard shortcuts, right? In the age of graphic user interface. So you have a mouse, you have point and click interface. That's really easy. You drag folders around, but as you become more advanced, you can start to use things like keyboard shortcuts and those become very, very powerful, but those are really hidden from the user in the base language for the most part, right? Apple tries to expose them in the menus by giving you little hints, but overall, those are things that you don't need to know to operate the system. But if you do know them, it makes it much more powerful. So, you know, I think as long as the extra ways of doing things don't interfere with the base functionality, for me, I feel like that's okay. Um, but I still understand the point here, right? If these kinds of user interfaces add complexity or add confusion to sort of that base language for most users, then I think at that point, you really have to evaluate the value of the extra stuff, right? So if there are five ways to actually dismiss a call? Do we really need five ways to do that? That seems like it likely is overkill, but I'd have to go back and analyze uh, all the places you do that. I'm trying to think of, you know, how I dismiss an incoming call. And uh, I can think of maybe one or two, not really five. So I'm curious one, if that, that argument is valid and I'll have to do the research to confirm that. But, you know, again, the point I think is taken. So, you know, what is the right amount of base functionality and then maybe layered on advanced functionality or a little bit of additional complexity? Uh, and that's really kind of, I think, hard to say. It's something we definitely can have a conversation about and why I wanted to bring up this topic. I thought this was a really good thing for us to discuss. So I do know that, you know, I can have one example of this that I struggle with a little bit. And it's a feature that I use a lot because I like to operate mostly paperless. So uh, I use the print to PDF option, especially on my Mac quite a bit. So if I'm in Safari, and this usually comes up when I'm doing online billing or bills or something like that, right? Or making a purchase online, I get that order receipt, and I want to quote unquote, print it out. Um, but in my case, I always just save it to a PDF and I put it into my paperless application, the system that I use for sort of managing my paperless documents. And so I will use the print to PDF option on the Mac and it's pretty straightforward, right? You go to print and then in the print dialog, there is simply a PDF dropdown with a save to PDF option. Seems straightforward. It's very kind of labeled out and illustrated on iOS. It's a little bit more hidden. It's a little bit trickier. So on iOS, you know, to print, you have to click the share button, which is already a little bit odd. But I think, again, 
going back to what we were talking about earlier, I think most of us have kind of learned that language that, you know, that share button is where all those extra features and functionality are when you're inside an app. So the share button does quite a bit more than just share. And I think that's become part of that, that design language that we've learned over time. So you click on the share button, you choose print, and then this is where it gets a little bit confusing because now you're in the print dialog and it looks like the only thing that you can do is print, but there's actually another share button. So you have to tap the share again, and then it gives you the options for doing PDF stuff like saving two files. So in both cases, you kind of have two clicks or two taps or whatever it might be to get to the save PDF option. But I think on the Mac, it's much clearer. The path is much clearer. And on iOS, it's a little bit more hidden. So it's an interesting thing. Definitely something to think about. I know iOS, it's not as obvious that the share button is where a print dialogue would be. Whereas, you know, save as PDF printing in the Mac makes a little bit more sense, at least to me. So I'm curious to turn to you. What other confounding or baffling iOS scavenger hunt user interface features do you know about or struggle with? And uh, are there ones that you can share with us and maybe offer some tips and tricks or alternate ways of doing things? Like, I think there's a good conversation to have around this. So I want to thank... Um, John for sending this one in. I think it's a great conversation and I'm curious to hear what the community has to say about it. But with that, that is going to do it for this week's episode. Thanks for hanging out. Before I leave you, I do want to take a moment and thank some of my show supporters. Bandwidth for the MacCast is provided by Cashfly. You can find them at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com and all advertising on the MacCast is handled by Backbeat Media. They are at Backbeat com. As always, I love to hear from you. If you have a comment, a question, something you'd like to hear covered on a future episode of the MacCast, you can send your emails and audio comments to maccast at gmail.com. You're also welcome to call in on the listener hotline and leave a voicemail. That phone number is 281-622-4269-281-MAC-IM-9. And if you need show notes, links to anything that I talked about on this or any other episode of the MacCast, you'll find those on the website. That's at maccast.com. And if you want to follow me on social media, you can find me on Twitter, twitter.com slash maccast. You can check out the MacCast Facebook page over at facebook.com slash the MacCast or find me on Instagram, just MacCast on Instagram. But that will do it for now. Until next time, I will talk to you all again real soon.